Good morning. Welcome to worship. I'm glad to see everyone here. We're glad for our visitors. We're glad for our uh, regulars. And we need to realize that this isn't about us today. This is about God. We've come to worship Him. So that's our goal today is to worship Him. You know, there's nothing quite like a thunderstorm in the middle of a hot summer, a dry summer. We look in the west and we see this dark cloud coming along and think, aha, we're going to get some rain, some relief from the heat, some relief from the drought, whatever it is. And the storm comes and with that comes a little trepidation in our hearts and our minds and our souls, wondering what this storm will really bring. Could there be a tornado in it? Could there be a flash of lightning that strikes the barn next to me? What, what do you think? Anyway, uh, the interesting thing is, after every storm, after every storm, there's a calm. Look at the, uh, the places where the tornadoes have ravaged things in the south. In two or three days, the sun comes out, it's shining, and there's a storm. I like to think about that as Jesus passing by. I think that's important as we think about the storms in our life. I'd like to talk a little bit about storms in our life today. Uh, the storms pass by, and, that, and we get over it, and we feel better. But in the, in the end, Jesus passes by, and that's why we feel better. Sometimes we have to identify what our storm is. What, what's it about? Is it me personally? Is it my family? Is it my neighbors? It's something about work? God forbid, something about our church? Or is it about circumstances beyond our control, something that just happens? About a week and a half ago, we're just coming home from a little vacation, and we find out that my son Terry has fallen and, and uh, fractured his kneecap. Well, that didn't sound so bad. Six weeks, and we back up at it. We get the crops planted and everything will be okay. He goes to the doctor to get, have surgery on it to, to wire that kneecap back together. Find out he's got some, a torn ligament and some torn muscles. And he's going to be on crutches for six weeks and maybe back to work in six more. That's a little storm I've had in my life the last couple weeks. We're trying to work through that. As Clem was talking this morning, uh, he mentioned something about God made us and he knows all about us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's, how we're going to react. And we can praise him for that. But I have to keep in my mind that, that God had this all planned. And God's got a plan to fix it. Can I adhere to that plan? Can I submit myself to his will enough to feel good about it? God's sovereign, he's in control. You know, the storms that we go through in life are most of the time caused by fear. The fear of what's coming, the fear of the unknown. In our Sunday school this morning, I think somebody said that we see right here. We're afraid to look further because we don't know what's, what's gonna happen. So what, what, what brings on fear? 
I think a lack of faith is where our fear comes in. We have not trusted, I have not trusted that God's gonna take care of this thing for me. And I'm still working through that. You know, Jonah was mentioned a little bit this morning also, and, and Jonah kind of went through two storms. The one he recovered from nicely and did a good job. Uh, he went to Nineveh, preached the gospel, the people repented, but that didn't please Jonah, and he went through another storm. I don't know what happened to Jonah after that. It doesn't say how God treated him after that storm. I suppose there was a calm in there. The first one, definitely, there was a calm when, when he, the fish swallowed him, and, and I think Jesus passed by again for Jonah and said, and Jonah realized that he has to do what God wants him to do. That's where I'm at with, with my life, and I think that's where we're all at, is, is we have to realize that we're here to serve God, not ourselves, not our family. Uh, God's first. In Luke 24 and 36, the disciples were on the Emmaus Road, and they was, they was in a turmoil. They, they didn't know what to think about Jesus and what had happened. And he comes along, and they didn't even know it was him. And he says to them, peace be unto you. Jesus passed by. That's where our answer is, Jesus passing by. In Mark 4, 39, we're all familiar with these, with these scriptures. The disciples were in the boat, and Jesus was there with them, and the sea became boisterous, and they was concerned. But Jesus said, peace be still. Jesus passed by again. You know, Daniel, when he was being uh, uh, punished for what the king thought he did wrong, they put him in the lion's den. And he, he, he survived that, but I think he survived that because he was faithful, he was obedient, and he was thankful. Three good attributes for me to think about as I go through the storms of life. I can be thankful it wasn't different. I can be faithful to what God has given me. I can be obedient to what he tells me to do. So the ultimate goal in conquering our, conquering our fears is, is, uh, is to find peace. Peace in the storm. That's, that's, that's where we need to be. So what, what is peace? What is the definition of peace? I got a couple things written down here. There's, there's more than that. Uh, one of them is, it's tranquility of, the, of our minds. Have we got the peace of our mind? Are we okay with that? And along with that, it's being free from all worry and care. That's easy to say, a little harder to do. So how do we attain peace? It's, we've, we've talked a lot about it already. It's through obedience, it's through faithfulness, it's through being thankful. In Galatians 5.22, we, we have a list of the fruit of the Spirit. It goes something like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. I like to think there's no accident about the way that was written together where it says love and joy, the first two the first two attributes of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. I believe that if we love and have joy, that will equal peace in our heart at all times. So who is the author of peace? 
We all know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. He's the author. Uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching about the concerns in life. He's telling them how to, how to uh, not worry about things. And in 6.33, he says, Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first. And he lists some things there that we should seek first. And all these will be added to you. And I believe peace is in that list that we can have as we walk through life. In John 4.27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives it to you. Do I give you, let not your heart be troubled. In Philippians 4.7, he says, Peace of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. So this past Thursday morning, I wake up at 5 o'clock. I can't sleep. I get to thinking about what in the world am I going to do? How is this going to work out? But I know that God's going to take care of this. It's just how do I get my mind around that? How can I uh, bend my will to his some way, somehow? So I laid there a while and finally got up. At 7 o'clock, I went and got my uh, morning devotions that I look at most of the time. And the title of it was Patience in Affliction. Just hit me right between the eyes. That's what I needed was patience in my affliction that I've kind of caught, brought upon myself. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul was relaying how he had three times asked God to remove a thorn in his flesh. Three times he asked him. And finally he said that God told him, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I believe that's where we're at today. So Jesus passes by. He brings our peace if we allow that to happen in our lives. So the questions that come to my mind is, will I recognize Jesus as the ultimate peace giver? Will I put my faith and trust in him? Will you put your faith and trust in him? There's a hymn that we have often sang, and I've used this little verse before. Uh, I'm going to alter it just a little bit, but it goes like this. May the grace of Christ our Savior, I'd like to say, may the peace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon us from above. Before we go to prayer, I'm going to ask for prayer request. First thing I want to say is, I think that uh, my wife has kept you somewhat informed about our, our situation, and I want to thank you all for keeping us in your prayers. Is there any other prayer requests? Zach. This came through in regards to Tom St. John. Good morning. Starting out this morning, I would like to um, take our minds back several years uh, to a story that probably none of you have ever heard. Maybe you have, um, but we're going to go all the way back to 1994. And when we get there, we meet a man by the name of Mario, who is a police officer um, stationed in, I believe, Texas. And this man is um, um, very fit, he's very athletic and active. And he decides to enter in what's called the world's toughest race. And 
Um, I believe that is called the, Mar the Marathon des Sables. Maybe pronouncing that wrong, but basically what it is, it's 155 miles you have to travel by foot across the Sahara Desert. Um, and they do this in roughly under a week. Um, and every person that, that enters in this race is faced with the desert's trademark, you know, brutality per se, heat and sand. But there's none that's had it tougher than this man Mario so far. Uh, not long after the start of the race, he found himself in the middle of a sandstorm. And for several hours, Mario kept trudging along and he would turn his back to the storm and he would, he would um, kind of shelter himself and then he would get up and move just so that he wouldn't get buried uh, in sand. And he kept doing this for some time and, and eventually uh, the storm was over and he kept heading out on what he thought was the correct path. Um, he kept going down this road, this path, but it turned out was the wrong direction. And he eventually realized that he was going the wrong way. Mario had, had been practicing, the, um, you know, preparing for this, and he, he knew what he had to do. And he, he started heading towards, I believe, a mountain range, and he would, walk during, um, he would walk during the day. He would try and find heat in the noonday and walk in the, in the morning and the evenings. And then he got hit by another sandstorm. This one lasted for about 12 hours. And he eventually found a Muslim shrine, which he sheltered up in. And this was home to a number of, of small bats. And he was able to catch a couple of those. And he actually just drank the blood of them. He knew that if he ate the flesh, this would only worsen his dehydration at this point. And yet, this was where Mario decided to give up hope. And he decided that he might as well die here versus out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, where his body will never be found. And um, he found a piece of charcoal, I guess, that was in there, and he wrote a note to his wife on the wall, and then he cut his wrists. Um, but he didn't die. He, he was not able to kill himself. His blood was too thick. It wouldn't even run out. Um, so renewed by this, he set out again, and for another five days, he was heading towards this distant mountain range, and he came across an, an oasis of water, and Despite only having his waste to drink for a number of days, he only drank just a small amount of water. And a family of nomads found him and they took him to the safety of a nearby military base. And the end of the story is Mario made it out alive. He spent nine days in the wilderness. He ended up 186 miles away from the correct route he was supposed to go. And he lost 40 pounds of sheer body mass. He basically had shriveled up. Um, that's quite a story. And I won't really, uh, you could go a number of different ways with a story like that, but I want to, to quickly contradict that with thinking of picturing yourself in the best place you've ever been in your life. Just bring it real to yourself. I don't know where that's it. I'll throw a couple ideas out to you. Um, I'm friends with several Turners, so Canada comes to mind. Um, they talk about Canada all the time, never been there. 
Um, people travel to the Caribbean, especially this time of day, to get some nice sunshine. Uh, you know, green trees, white sand, clear water. Um, Colorado is another one that comes to mind. Um, or maybe you just you you you're um, what you think would be the best thing, you, or best place you go in your life is sell everything you have and just travel. There's people that do that. I, we met a couple. I um, mean, go to Florida, Texas, um, California, Hawaii, or maybe you'd just rather be right here with your church body, uh, body of believers, your friends, your family. I don't know where you'd rather be, but try and picture yourself there and imagine the vast difference of being um, you know, in a desert, in the wilderness, and being in the place that you love to be. So if you want a title for this message, um, it would be Wilderness Living versus Promised Land Living. Now I'm going to spend some time talking about both, and I, and I put a subtitle on there of do I need an attitude adjustment, because actually what we're really going to talk about is attitudes, which is something that we all have every moment of our life. You hear uh, people say, you know, when you hear some kid bawling in Kroger, you know, hey, he needs an attitude adjustment. But we actually possess and express our attitude at all times. Um, it, it doesn't matter, you know, what age you are. This message is for everyone because it's something that we deal with and we don't necessarily think that it's a big deal. That's something that we um, have at all times. It's, I picture an attitude somewhat like a car battery. It's either negative or it's positive. There's really no in-between because really you're, you're on the way to one or the other one. Um, and it's magnetic. I can think of several people um, that I know, um, a couple at work, and it's, it's not Kidron, I do work with them, um, but they, they have what I would call a bad attitude, and it doesn't hardly matter, even when I talk to them on the phone, I get grumpy. It's just, it's just kind of magnetic, it, it, just, it just pulls you in that direction. Um, and also, attitudes have the power to change life and change the direction of life even. Um, they're just very interesting to, to study. I come across this illustration of an attitude um, by, do by Dr. Miles Monroe. Um, he claims that there's, uh, in scripture, there's really only two animals that uh, the creator identifies himself with. And these two animals are the king of their domain. And the first one being an eagle. You find that, there's a, a, he refers to that a couple places, Jeremiah 48, 40, and Deuteronomy 32, 10, 32, 10 through 12. He refers himself as being an eagle. And they really are the king of the, of the air. Any kind of study and I did on an eagle, they're really only the predator that they have as humans. Um, and there's just really nothing that can take an eagle out. The other animal that God identifies himself with, um, you probably already thought of it, but it's the lion. And you'll find that in Revelations. It talks about the lion of Judah. And that's so intriguing, because if you think about the lion being the king of his domain, there's six points that the lion is not, that you would maybe think a king would be. One is, the lion's not the biggest animal. The lion is not the strongest animal in his domain. Number three is the lion is not the tallest animal. He's not the heaviest animal 
He's not the smartest animal, and he's not the fastest animal. So how does he be the king of his domain? And what uh, Miles Monroe had kind of figured out that really it's the attitude of the lion that makes him the king of his domain. I mean, when, when, the, when the lion shows up, everybody's instantly scared or they run away. Um, I mean, you think about that. A lion approaches an elephant, and a lion probably would not approach an elephant by himself, but he has the attitude of the fact that he has the ability to kill this thing, and the elephant knows it and it's scared and wants to run. So it's the, it's the attitude that makes the difference. Um, just in a, another thing that I found about attitude in psychology, an attitude refers to a set of emotions or beliefs and behaviors toward a particular object, person, thing, or event. And attitudes are often the result of an experience or upbringing, and they can have a powerful influence over behavior. While attitudes are enduring, they can also change. So keep that in mind. So I want you to think, um, you know, our attitudes really, are they really important? Do they really make that big of a difference? Um, there is a story in 1 Kings chapter 18, I won't turn there, um, but it's the story of Elijah. And he just killed 450 prophets of Baal on a mountaintop. And in my own words here, he basically reached superhero status. Um, and then all of a sudden, he gets threatened by Jezebel, and he runs and hides himself in the wilderness and requests to die. So what, what was the difference? What happened? And... I would like to propose that it's his attitude that changed. Um, notice the correlation, the mountaintop, the positive attitude, and the wilderness, the negative attitude. And does God really care about our attitudes today? Is it a big deal to him? Um, we're going to spend a, a, fair, or a little bit of time here in uh, the Old Testament, and we're going to read some about the children of Israel. And... They, uh, you'll find out that God cares a big deal about attitudes. Um, and I hope, you know, by the end of this message, you'll be able to answer that question yourself. So if, um, let's see here, if you turn to Numbers 14, um, you'll find a lot about, about attitudes there, per se, and murmuring and complaining. I'm going to get there in a minute. Go ahead and turn your Bible there. Um, so in verses 26 and 29, 26 through 29, God really cares about attitudes. And you'll see he takes great measure towards some bad attitudes. That's the answer to this question that I, that I presented you. Does God really care about our attitude? Um, let's see. 26, and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation and with murmuring against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. 
Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. So basically he's saying everybody that murmured against me that's 20 years and up, you're going to die. You can replace that word murmuring with the word complaining. Um, so you might say, yeah, but that, that's like 3,000 years ago, right? I mean, God's different today than he was 3,000 years ago. He's not like that anymore. Um, if you turn to 1 Corinthians, verse 1 through 11, you'll actually find that a little bit maybe different. Verse 1 Corinthians chapter 10 It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. How that our fathers, how, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed, were under the cloud, and passed through the sea. And they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. For many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be, a, neither be ye idolaters as, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell on one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. And here we go. Neither mur murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them, for, and samples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So that all happened for us to, for examples, as you see in there. And I think you would all agree that we are you know, roughly in the end time, so to speak. We've heard that. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. So I'm saying that that passage of Scripture is for us today. That what happened back in Numbers 14 and back in Exodus happened for us today. Um, before I get too far, I want to establish what attitudes are. I've already talked about them. But attitudes are patterns of thinking. And we all develop patterns of thinking, um, and it starts as a little kid, and I'll use this example of a ball, but we can all place ourselves here. Um, let's say this kid has a ball, and he's thrown it up in the air, and he drops the ball. He has several different attitudes he can choose, and you can put any example in here in your own life to make it real. He can choose to say, silly ball, who made this cheap, lousy ball anyway? It's so slippery, probably came from Aldi. Why didn't my parents buy me a better ball, you know, something from Dunham Sports or something? Or he could choose to say, where's my parents? I can't believe they're not here when I dropped the ball. If they loved me, they would be here to help me pick it up and get through this. Or he could choose to say, I'm such a loser. I always drop the ball. I've played with other kids and they don't drop the ball all the time like I do. I'm the only one that drops the ball. What's wrong with me? I'm such a loser. Or he could choose to say, it's my fault I dropped the ball. People drop the ball all the time. I'm going to have a positive attitude about it. I'm going to pick it up. 
and go on. Maybe I'll grow through this somehow. Stop dropping the ball eventually as often as I do now. Does this sound familiar? Like I said, you can put any example in there. And I can think of several for my own, for myself. And it doesn't just pertain to kids, but that's where it starts. It starts with a pattern of thinking. And they're formed over a long period of time. There's been a lot of study uh, recently done on the brain um, over the past 10 years, per se. And they're finding out a lot of things about the brain. Basically, when you have a, a thought, it's these neuropathways that connect that makes that thought. And the more you think about that, the more natural it is for you to go down that road. So let's think if you're walking through a woods, it's very easy to walk down the, the, the path that's very trodden. Um, if you're hiking in a park or whatever, that's, that's the path you go down. It's very easy. Versus if you were trying to blaze a new path through the woods. Very difficult. So when something bad happens or when some circumstance happens, your brain, your subconsciousness will revert to the path most trodden. Um, and your, your neuro connections will instantly fire down the easiest path. So if you're constantly thinking negative things, that's going to be your pattern of thinking. Um, that's going to be where you revert to when something goes south. Um, look at, you can use the children of Israel as a perfect example. Um, you know, they're always you know, whining and complaining. And I'm not saying I'd be any different in their shoes, but you go all the way back to Egypt, and and it just they start out as soon as anything happens, they they want to go back to Egypt, or they they you know did you bring us out here to die, or, or you know what do you do? Um, over time, their attitudes got so deeply ingrained that um, that we hardly even notice them. They become automatic, and we don't even think attitudes are choices at some point. And it's just, you know, it's just the circumstances that we're in. And we start feeling trapped. And the truth is, is that's not true. That you do have a choice to make. So for a little time, I'm going to talk about just two different attitudes. Um, the first attitude is complaining. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament. Um, and... Basically, if you have the attitude of complaining, you're going to join our friend Mario in the Sahara Desert. That's where you're going to live life. It's going to be dry. It's going to be uh, sandstorms. It's not going to be good. It's, um, you're going to have a, a rough road to hoe, per se. So just looking at some of these, and you don't have to turn to these, um, but some instances in Exodus where we see the children of Israel complain. Um, Exodus 14:12 says, "It's not is not this the word that we did tell thee?" And we'll start over. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, "Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians"? Where it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Exodus 15:24, and the people murmured against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?" In Exodus 16, 3, the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt than we set by, when we sat by the flesh pots. And when we did eat bread to the full, we have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 17, 3, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? 
In essence, they're saying, God, you blew it. You had a chance to meet my expectations, and you just didn't measure up. You didn't do it. It was close, but it wasn't good enough. So does God hear our complaining? I think we've rather already established that. In Numbers uh, chapter 11, you turn to that. Um, we're going to read 1 through 10 there. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. I don't really hardly think I need to go any further to answer my question if God cares about our complaining attitude. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And that's also something that we'll get into a little bit, and that is that prayer really does make a difference, and that God is everything. And verse 3, And he called the name of the place Tabra, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? There they are complaining again. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Must have got pretty far south if they're uh, lusting for onions and garlic. But now our soul is dried away, and there is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And the manna was a coriander seed, and the color thereof is the color of a bedallion. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. And when Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Therefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? Thou layest the burden of all these people upon me. I was going to stop in verse 10. But the, um, as you can see, that Moses and the Lord was greatly displeased, it says there in verse 10. So does God hear our complaining? The answer to that is, of course, yes. So for help on, you know, we, um, basically we need to, to turn ourselves around if that's where we're at today, as in the desert, um, in the wilderness. Something's got to change, and if you have a, basically if you have a problem with this, prayer is where you got to go to. And you've got to ask for help and start focusing on what God has provided for you in your life. Because like I said, it's all about God. Because um, I'm going to talk a little bit about choices, but ultimately, if God's not involved in your choice, if God's not your focus, the desert's where you're going to be. We can't, by our own personal strength, turn this boat around. So, I want to move into another attitude, right? If we get rid of, of one, we need to replace it with another one. Um, and so we're going to turn to, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 for most of this. Um, but the attitude of thankfulness is where we're going to be talking about. And that's what I'm calling the promised land living. 
you know, this form of thanks or this word thankfulness, um, we see it in the King James Bible about 139 times, and a lot of that is even in the Psalms. Um, you know, just for a few references, um, it's repeated over and over in the Psalms to give thanks to the Lord. Um, Psalms 105.1 and 106.1, 107.1, and then about all through the whole chapter of Psalms 107, it talks about giving God thankfulness or being thankful. So I ask another question, is it important to be thankful? You know, in our society that we live in today, they would say that it is. Um, you know, you take our little one-year-old Amity, we start very young, teaching them to be thankful and actually using sign language to say thank you. And so it's just kind of beat into our society that we're, we are to be thankful. And, but get, does God think it's important? Um, and do you even know how to be thankful? You know, you go, you go out to eat. I would say we, generally we know how to be thankful. We go out to eat. I counted roughly, probably say thank you somewhere around 20 times. Um, you know, it's just automatic. You just say it. You know, if they come refill your water, you just say thanks. Um, it's just kind of pounded into us. If you turn to Ephesians 5.20, uh, it says this, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You go to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But ask again, do we truly know how to be thankful? Because this verse is saying, in all things, to give thanks. Um, you know, it's through the good, it's through the bad, it's for, you know, the asked for, the not asked for. Now, I also would wonder, you know, if there's a different level of thankfulness even, there are different levels, because um, I can be thankful to the waitress, but when it comes to hardship, it seems to be a little bit different level of thankfulness. Um, if I'm truly thankful through that. Um, and I think to be living in the promised land this morning, we need to truly give thanks for all things. Um, Daniel would be a good example. Um, I would say the opening that Mike brought to us this morning was spot on. Um, I would say Daniel is a good example of thankfulness. You know, they, they threw him in the pit, and, and what he do? He prayed to God and was was thankful. But he, you know, he also he talks about faith there, having faith. Um, and we also find another good spot in Luke 17. If you want to turn there, um, we're going to start reading in verse 11 uh, through 19. And it come to pass as they went to Jerusalem that he passed. Wait a second here. Might be in the wrong spot. No, we're right. And it come to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and he entered into a certain village, and there met him ten men that were lepers. And if, I think most of you know what lepers are. They would have been a diseased people that were relatively, I believe, uncurable at that point. There wouldn't have been some medication they could take. To cure themselves, and so they were outcasts. They were out of the city. They weren't allowed to be around other people. And 
And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And they saw him, and he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests, which would be very abnormal. I believe there was a, a process for a, le- for a leper that was cleansed, maybe. I don't know a whole lot about that, a, um, an offering. Maybe there was a special offering for them. Probably extremely rare to have for a priest to see that or for that to even have taken place. And so you see them have a little bit of faith here. Because if you continue reading, um, it says, And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So they started heading towards the priest, as Jesus told them. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are, not, they, are, they are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. So here you see one of the lepers uh, giving thanks to God for, for healing him. Um, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about this healing versus being made whole. Because here, they all ten were healed. And so there's... Um, yeah, Jesus says it's, uh, thy faith hath made thee whole. So you can think about that as you go through life. I think we can be healed, but it's not until we have faith in Christ and that we are, um, you know, our subconsciousness goes to, to, um, to God, to pray to God that, until we're actually made whole. Um, so... Moving on, we want to talk about uh, kind of the last thing. We're going to be wrapping this up here shortly, but we want to talk about these things of choices. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going to get out of the wilderness um, living and into the promised land living until we accept the fact that really it's a choice that we have. Uh, maybe some of you don't really like this idea of the fact that it's the person in the mirror that's really the issue here. Um, it seems very natural to us to want to point to someone else and say, no, they're the issue. Um, and it's kind of our subconsciousness kind of does that. And you need to look at that. I, you know, as I studied through this a little this week, you know, it kind of become clear that I do need to look at that because I, I revert to that a lot. You know, I want to push my issues, my wilderness living problems onto other people. But it's really, it comes down to the fact of these choices. And if we don't involve God in our choices, um, I don't think, you know, you may make a choice to, to turn to promised land living, you know, to, to an attitude of, of gratitude. But I don't think it'll be real long lasting. Um, so you remember the story of Elijah. I talked about that just a little bit. He had a choice to make. Um, you know, he chose his own attitude. The children of Israel, they, um, they chose their own attitude. The nine lepers, they chose their attitude. And also the one leper. And Daniel, he also chose his attitude. So um, it's, 
like I said earlier, it's all about God. Um, if we do not involve him, bring him into our life, it's in our subconsciousness and our, our neuro pathways are, are subconsciously heading his direction, um, we're going to be in wilderness living. So that's, uh, that's all I had. If we can have a song, uh, we'll have some announcements, I guess, after that.